welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome back to First Incision. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is the esophagogastric upper GI module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the patient or topics we're going to be covering today are esophageal perforation and corrosive or caustic injuries. So I must admit, I have been putting off doing esophageal perforation as a topic, mainly because I think there are so many different pathways to management depending on the presentation of the patient and trying to structure that in my head was something that I was really struggling with. So I obviously delayed my problem, but now that I've covered most of the rest of the curriculum, I figured we'd better get to esophageal perforation. Although thankfully esophageal perforation is not a common presentation, it is very important because the mortality rate associated with esophageal perforation is quite high. The mortality rates of mediastinitis are up to 50%, and some of the risk factors for having a poor outcome include older patient, significant contamination with food, a late presentation more than 24 hours, the presence of other comorbidities, which reduce that patient's ability to deal with the septic and inflammatory mediastinitis, the presence of comorbidities in the esophagus, especially a malignancy, the experience of the doctors looking after the patient with the perforation, and typically the cause of the esophageal perforation, such as Boerhaave's, will have a higher mortality rate than a iatrogenic perforation where there's often less contamination of the mediastinum with food and often an earlier detection and therefore intervention of the perforation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the causes of esophageal perforation now. The most common cause of esophageal perforation is iatrogenic, so usually endoscopic or surgical perforation of the esophagus. The second cause is a spontaneous perforation, and this is often referred to as Boerhaave syndrome, which is spelled B-O-E-R-H-A-A-V-E apostrophe S. This spontaneous perforation is thought to occur due to a dramatic increase in esophageal pressure, usually in the setting of vomiting. Other causes include foreign bodies, caustic or corrosive injury, malignancy, especially in the setting of neoadjuvant treatment that can cause tumor necrosis or downstaging of the tumor leading to an esophageal defect, and also trauma including both penetrating and blunt injuries. So how do these patients present? It really does seem to depend on the cause of the perforation, as well as the degree of contamination of the chest and the stage of the patient's presentation. So it could range from in an iatrogenic injury, this being picked up at the time of the injury endoscopically with no gross contamination and a obviously early detection, ranging all the way to a patient presenting with a Boerhaave's with a chest absolutely full of food and with a late presentation, quite septic and unwell. 
Other symptoms, though, of esophageal perforation itself could include dysphagia or odinophagia, abdominal, back, neck or chest pain, a change in voice or shortness of breath. And the other thing we talk about is Mackler's triad, which was the original sort of typical presentation, although this only actually occurs in about 15% of patients who present with an esophageal perforation, but is good to know, which is the triad of vomiting, chest pain, and subcutaneous emphysema. Before I move on as well, I'll just briefly discuss Hammond's syndrome or Hammond's sign. This is a interesting potential differential diagnosis for a patient who's referred to you with metastinal gas and the concern for an esophageal perforation. And this is basically where there is an air leak, usually from the main or proximal trachea or bronchus. And this is thought to be a spontaneous occurrence where patients will then present with metastinal gas. And there's actually a sign associated with this called Hammond's sign, which is when you listen over the um, chest, you can hear a sort of crunching or rasping sound, which matches the heartbeat. And this is thought to be due to the heart beating against these air-filled tissues. And this is a condition that's usually managed conservatively. And patients are usually completely well. But the difficulty here is obviously excluding a esophageal perforation, which is managed very differently and has a much higher morbidity and mortality rate which does move us into diagnosis of esophageal perforation. The two key things to keep in mind when considering investigation of esophageal perforation is firstly to determine whether there is an esophageal perforation, whether there is a hole in the esophagus, and also to determine whether or not there is drainage from that hole into the chest and to localise which side of the chest that hole is draining into, as well as the location of the hole, proximal, distal, where exactly it is, because this is all really important to guide your management. Typically, the first investigation that will have happened on this patient is either a X-ray or a CT scan in the emergency department. They'll usually be referred to you with these investigations. The chest X-ray may demonstrate free gas under the diaphragm or more commonly, mediastinal gas. And it's good to have a look at an x-ray of what mediastinal gas actually looks like. It can be quite subtle, but usually shows gas around the heart, around the major vessels and bronchus, up into the neck, and can also have associated subcutaneous emphysema. And typically, if there's contamination into the chest, you may see pleural effusions. A CT scan is pretty sensitive in demonstrating mediastinal gas, but it doesn't have the sensitivity to be able to tell you where the gas has come from, whether this is esophageal, whether it's from the airways, where the perforation actually is, and it's not great at detecting other esophageal pathologies. A way of making it more sensitive is to give oral contrast, and this not only will give you information about the lumen of the esophagus, it can also identify contrast extravasation um, and specifically which chest it's going into and where the perforation actually is, usually in the esophagus. The other thing you want to look at is whether or not the leak is contained. So if that contrast is coming out of the esophagus slightly and then coming back in, so it's draining back into the esophagus, or whether it's draining out and into the chest. Saying that though, the most sensitive modality for picking up a hole in the esophagus is having a look with an upper GI endoscopy. 
Not only that, a gastroscope can tell you whether there's any other pathology in the esophagus and can also identify where the hole is, how big it is, the degree of uh, necrosis or ischemic mucosa, if that's a cause, and also, like I said, rule out other pathologies like a malignancy. At the same time, you can potentially try to repair it depending on the clinical situation, how the perforation occurred and how early it is, although this is controversial. But in addition, you can place a nasogastric or a nasogenital feeding tube, which, as we'll talk about, is really important to maintain nutrition, which is a key in the management of these patients. There is some concern that performing a gastroscope in a patient with a perforation will make the situation worse. I've definitely seen this done routinely in my institution and in the hands of an experienced esophageal surgeon using minimal insufflation, most would consider this a safe procedure and also a really important part of diagnosis and management of esophageal perforation. The last investigation I'll briefly mention, because I don't think this is done that frequently, is a fluoroscopic contrast swallow. So where the patient swallows contrasts and x-rays are taken, usually anterior, posteriorly and laterally. This will outline the esophageal lumen and can also demonstrate contrast extravasation. But I think in the context of a CT with oral contrast being much more sensitive and also giving you that soft tissue information that that would be the preferred investigation over a fluoroscopic contrast swallow. Moving on now to management. The principles of management of an esophageal perforation are firstly a timely intervention, management of sepsis and control of contamination, restoration of gastrointestinal continuity, and ensuring adequate nutritional support. So in regards to a timely intervention, the reason I've mentioned that is because there is increasing mortality associated with delays of management of esophageal perforation. So it's really key to have a high index of suspicion to identify the perforation early with the investigations we've talked about. And following that, to have a low threshold to intervene in managing sepsis and contamination to make sure that we're giving that patient the best chance of surviving this pathology. So moving a bit further into management, the key first steps, as with any septic or unwell patient that you see, is to resuscitate the patient appropriately. And in Australia, we would say this would be done using the CRISP approach, which involves placement of two large bore IV cannulae, IV fluid resuscitation, correction of electrolytes, early IV antibiotics, and in the case of an esophageal perforation, we also need to provide IV antifungal cover as well, keeping the patient nil by mouth to limit further contamination, sending bloods that may guide or influence your management, including FBE, UEC, CMP, a blood gas looking at their base excess and lactate, blood cultures if they are febrile, group and hold, and coagulation studies. Another important thing to consider is where you and the patient are. These patients really need to be managed at a major tertiary centre with multidisciplinary teams that are used to dealing with this pathology. So if you are in a tertiary centre, you should be considering early transfer to a major centre, which obviously depends on that patient's clinical scenario. So if they were really, really unwell, although it's not the best option, you may need to 
debride or wash out and place drains in order to stabilize that patient for transfer. But like I said, these patients do need to be cared for in one of those major centers. So once you have resuscitated the patient and done your appropriate imaging, at this point, there's a couple of different pathways the patients can go down. Really, an assessment needs to be made of the entire clinical picture, which would include the cause of the perforation, whether or not there's any underlying pathology like a malignancy or a motility disorder, how unwell that patient is, the degree of contamination, whether this is a contained leak. And all of that needs to be looked at together to decide what the next pathways for treatment are. In general, the options include non-operative management, endoscopic options, and operative management. So I'll briefly touch on non-operative management. I assume this is quite controversial, but there is some evidence out there that spontaneous rupture of the esophagus may be able to be managed non-operatively. There was a paper called Spontaneous Rupture of the Esophagus in the British Journal of Surgery in 2008 by Griffin et al. if you wanted to have a look at that. And basically, they had certain criteria for managing a patient non-operatively. This include the perforation being contained in the mediastinal pleura, flow of contrast back into the esophagus on contrast swallow, no clinical evidence of mediastinitis, which would include sort of infection or SIRS, no solid food contamination of the mediastinum, or demonstrated tolerance to pleural contamination, which had been radiologically drained for more than 72 hours prior to transfer. And in these patients, they, like I said, managed them non-operatively, which included placement of a nasogastric tube and enteral nutrition, IV antibiotics, as well as targeted drainage of the chest if required. They looked at 31 patients, 17 of which met that criteria and underwent conservative management, and there were no deaths among that group. But this probably does reflect the fact that there is a range of presentations of this pathology and that some patients are presenting on that milder side of, of the spectrum of disease. And this criteria, I guess, offers a way to identify those patients that may benefit from not having intervention. I've never seen this done in my institution, but I've only seen a few of these patients, and I'm not really clear on whether or not you would talk about this in the exam, sort of how well established it is, but I think it's worth knowing about, and and we can ask the question of whether or not you'd mention it in the exam to the specialist we get to talk about this topic on the program. I'll also only briefly mention endoscopic interventions for esophageal perforation. This again is slightly controversial, but it could be indicated in the setting of an iatrogenic endoscopic perforation where the perforation is seen at the time of the injury with an attempt to repair it using an endoscopic means. And again, these patients are not going to have gross contamination and with early intervention may avoid sort of the operative morbidity associated with requiring more extensive intervention. But saying all that, there is no randomized data comparing endoscopic options with surgery so I think it really is something that needs to be considered on a case-by-case basis depending on that patient's individual presentation. The options include clipping the defect, so this could include a through-the-scope clip or an over-the-scope clip. And we know from POEM 
procedures that you can clip the mucosa and lead to healing, although these are not full thickness perforations. But there is some, I guess, background to doing endoscopic clipping and closure of mucosal injuries. The other option is a fully covered self-expanding metal stent. It's pretty controversial because these stents are not actually designed for this. They usually need some sort of tumor narrowing that's going to hold them in position. So there is quite a high migration rate in a normal esophagus. In addition, in the context of sepsis, they can erode or they can cause an incomplete seal. In addition, patients who have injuries near the gastroesophageal junction, that stent crossing the gastroesophageal junction can cause significant reflux disease. The benefits may be that you can start feeding that patient earlier by restoring that luminal integrity. And obviously you avoid the morbidity of a operative repair. Again, saying all that though, there is not much literature in looking at stents in esophageal perforations. There was one study published in the Annals of Surgery in 2013 called Endoscopic Stent Insertion versus Primary Operative Management for Spontaneous Rupture of the Esophagus, an international study comparing outcomes. And this basically looked at a high-volume British centre which performed surgical drainage or primary repair and compared that to a high-volume German centre that used stents. It was quite a low-volume study. Only 13 patients had stents and Out of those 13 patients, 11 of them required surgery and three required repeat surgery. So once again, in a tertiary experience center, this may be considered but depends on the individual patient situation and presentation. The last endoscopic technique I wanted to talk about, I have actually seen used in a couple of cases, and this is the use of an endovac or endo sponge. So this is basically like a vacuum dressing, but usually placed on the end of a nasogastric tube with the foam placed into the perforation and that placed on a vacuum suction. I've definitely never seen this done as the primary option to try to repair the perforation. I've seen it used as an adjunct to help with healing of the perforation in the same way that a vac dressing on an external wound will help encourage granulation tissue and healing as well as remove exudate from the area to promote healing. The endovac does this in the same way in the esophagus. The pros of this is that it obviously controls the leak and contamination, so it's also stopping fluid leaking into the chest, but it does need changing every 48 hours. In one series, the average VAC changes was seven over the course of that patient's admission, so it's quite labour-intensive. It can erode into adjacent structures and longer term can cause or be associated with esophageal stenosis. But saying that, it is a useful adjunct potentially for the management of this condition in certain circumstances. So finally, into the operative management of this condition, which is what we're all interested in. Before I get into the four main options that we have for surgical intervention in esophageal perforation, I just want to mention the importance of drainage in these scenarios. So we have talked about some conservative and some endoscopic options, and this same principle applies when we're talking about surgical options as well. But if a patient has contamination in the chest, then this really does need to be controlled. 
And there are a number of options to do that, whether it's just purulent contamination and drains are placed or whether there's food in there and a thoracotomy needs to be performed with a washout and drains placed. This really is an important adjunct because the esophagus is not going to heal in the setting of sepsis and inflammation around it as with any anastomosis. So that's something really important to consider. And you can also get contamination in other areas, such as down into the abdomen, depending on where the perforation is. If it's in the very distal or intra-abdominal component of the esophagus, then you can also get abdominal contamination and peritonitis, which again requires intervention with either laparoscopic or laparotomy washout and drains placed to control the sepsis. One other important thing to mention as well before I get into managing the perforation itself is the consideration of nutrition being really important in these patients. In the same way that an anastomosis or a hole in a viscera won't heal if there is infection or contamination around, it's very difficult for the body to heal a perforation in the setting of malnutrition. Given the location of this perforation being in the esophagus, there's some added considerations here with delivering adequate nutrition safely. There are a number of options for providing nutrition for patients, and I think the choice of this will depend on the patient's situation, whether or not they're going to surgery, or whether they're being managed non-operatively. The options are pretty varied. If a patient's being managed non-operatively, they may have a nasogeginal tube placed. If a patient's going to theatre for chest strains, then you could consider doing a lap feeding jejunostomy and venting gastrostomy at the same time. If a patient's having a open repair or open surgery, then they could have a venting gastrostomy and feeding jejunostomy placed at the time. It really does depend on what you're doing and what it is that's done routinely at your institution. So there are four main options when talking about surgery for esophageal perforation. The first is primary repair, potentially with a patch. The second is drainage. The third is resection, and the fourth is diversion with delayed reconstruction. So let's talk about primary repair. Primary repair may be indicated in somebody who has a early presentation, so in less than 24 hours, who has a previously normal esophagus. So this is not somebody who has achalasia or a malignancy. And can be done through a number of approaches depending on the location of the perforation. And that's why the endoscopy and preoperative images can guide your operative management. If there's a distal esophageal perforation draining into the left chest, then you may consider a left lower thoracic approach, usually through the sixth or seventh intercostal space. If the perforation is in the very distal esophagus or the abdominal esophagus, then you may consider a laparotomy in order to approach the perforation transhiatally. Or if there is a higher perforation or drainage into the right chest, you may consider a right-sided approach. Prior to performing the primary repair, debridement of any necrotic tissue should be performed, as well as adequate lavage and washout and removal of foreign body, as I talked about earlier. The primary repair usually involves extending the myotomy, so the muscle perforation, because the underlying mucosal perforation is often longer than the muscle perforation. So you extend the myotomy to show the entire underlying mucosal injury and then requires closure in layers, usually with a 
continuous suture on the mucosa and interrupted sutures to the muscle. The suture of choice here being a 3O PDS on a tapered needle. Following repair, it's a good idea to try to buttress or reinforce the repair with tissue coverage or a patch. Depending on the location of the perforation, this could be an omental patch, pericardial fat pad, periesophageal fat pad, parietal pleura, a a wrap of the fundus, or even muscle flaps, including the intercostal muscles, latissimus dorsi, serratus, or sternocleidomastoid in the neck. And following this, wide drains should be placed, so chest drains or abdominal drains around the adjacent tissue spaces. As well as that, you need to consider nutrition and placement of a feeding jejunostomy, which can be done laparoscopically if you haven't needed to enter the abdomen for the repair. And this should also include a venting tube, whether that's part of the feeding jej or a separate venting gastrostomy tube, or even a nasogastric tube. The other thing to mention is that luminal drainage should also be attempted with a nasogastric tube placed adjacent to the repair. The next management option was drainage. And this is useful if somebody has a delayed presentation because often there is extensive necrotic tissue and as well as that the esophageal tissue is quite inflamed and not particularly healthy, which means that it has a lower chance of actually healing if you do try to primarily close and repair it. This may also be useful in a patient who is really unstable as a damage control type procedure. And the steps of drainage include doing a thorough washout and lavage and removing any foreign body or contaminating tissue, debriding any necrotic tissue, and then usually placement of a T-tube to the defect. So this involves placing a T-tube with the upper part of the T running vertically in the esophagus and then the longer drainage portion coming out the side of the esophagus and out of the chest. And you can close or sort of cobble the esophageal defect around the T-tube to make sure it's adequately secured, although this can be difficult depending on the quality of the tissue. This can also be done in the case of a failed repair where you have a leakage that then needs to be controlled secondarily. There was a large series looking at esophageal perforations by Abbas et al. that showed a higher mortality for T-tubes, but this is probably related to selection bias as these patients are sicker on presentation and have worse tissues, and that's why they are given a T-tube rather than chosen for a primary repair. Once again, these patients also need adequate drainage of the adjacent organ spaces, as well as consideration of nutrition with a feeding jejunostomy and either a venting gastrostomy or nasogastric tube. The reason we talk about a venting gastrostomy rather than a nasogastric tube for drainage is because it can take a really long time for these patients to improve. I think in one study, the median stay of these patients in hospital is 58 days, and that can be a long time to have a nasogastric tube in place. So it's nice to consider early on a venting gastrostomy tube so that you're not getting the morbidity of a nasogastric tube for a long time. Moving on now to resection. Resection may be an option in the case of a malignancy, especially if there's a stricture there, and also in the context of untreated achalasia, especially if there's evidence of esophageal dilatation. 
Resection in, means removing the esophagus, so an esophagectomy, which is obviously a major undertaking and requires that patient to be relatively stable to be able to tolerate such a long, complex procedure. But this goes to the principle of obviously treating the perforation, but also addressing the primary cause of the perforation, which if it is a malignancy or an achalasia, there's no point trying to repair that. It's not going to heal in the context of ongoing primary pathology. And anastomosis should only be attempted in a situation where there really is minimal contamination. And again, the principles of lavage, wide drainage, and considering nutrition apply here as well. The last option is diversion. So this is a situation where a patient's presented late, has significant contamination, has significant esophageal damage, um, and basically involves diverting by forming a esophagostomy in the neck. This does mean that if a patient swallows their saliva or drinks fluids, that they will come out of a stoma that is sitting in their neck. So obviously we need to consider adequate nutrition in these patients, usually with a feeding jejunostomy. And a venting gastrostomy is really important here because obviously if the proximal end is stapled off and they get an obstruction or an ileus or some sort of complication from feeding, there's nowhere for that to go and that can cause blowout of whatever your proximal control has been. So in terms of proximal control, depending on how sick the patient is, you can either perform an esophagectomy and remove the esophagus from the chest, or if a patient is really unwell, you may consider just stapling off the proximal end and coming back another time to remove the esophagus. And obviously, this will include a delayed reconstruction, usually a number of months down the track once the patient has recovered from their sepsis and is nutritionally replete enough in order to survive a major reconstruction and anastomosis. Yay, I'm so happy esophageal perforation is finally done. Hopefully that was a good summary. I know that there is a lot of variation across different units about how to approach the problem. I guess sticking to those principles and making sure that you are approaching it as safely as possible is going to be my approach for the exam. So let's move on to our second topic for today, which is corrosive or caustic injuries. I thought we should talk about this topic because the pathophysiology is definitely something that could come up in the pathophys section of the exam. And there's also a few different grading systems uh, and principles of management that I think would definitely be examinable. So just as an introduction, caustic and corrosive ingestions mostly occur in children and usually are accidental. But there's also a subset of adult patients, usually with an underlying psychological issue that can present with corrosive or caustic ingestions. The extent and severity of injuries associated with ingesting these substances really does depend on a number of things. The first thing is the corrosive properties of that substance itself. The second is the amount, concentration and form of substance that's been ingested. And the last is the duration of contact with the mucosa. And the typical story is that kids will not like the taste of these things and so will usually limit the amount that they ingest. But patients, especially if they're presenting with suicidal intent, can ingest large amounts. And a larger amount and more concentrated form is usually associated with more significant damage. I like to split these substances up into alkali and acidic substances. 
So examples of alkali substances include sodium or potassium hydroxide, which can be found in drain cleaners, other cleaning products, and also in disc batteries. And the other common alkali agent is household bleach. Examples of acidic agents include hydrochloric, sulfuric, and phosphoric acid, which can be found in toilet cleaners, anti-rust compounds, swimming pool cleaners, and also some battery fluids. The presentation of injury with these two different substances does differ. So alkali-induced injury typically will cause more damage in the esophagus and then is usually partially neutralized by the acid in the stomach and therefore causes less injury there compared to acidic ingestion where the acid usually passes quickly to the stomach causing less esophageal damage but then can impair emptying into the duodenum and sit in the stomach for a long period of time causing more gastric damage and It's important to consider that if somebody does ingest these substances, it can also induce upper airway injuries, such as to the larynx or trachea. So these patients can also present in respiratory distress. In terms of the pathophysiology of injury, starting with alkali-induced injury, the key buzzword here is liquefactive necrosis. This process involves denaturing of proteins and saponification of adipose tissue, And liquefactive necrosis is not limited by tissue planes, so you can get a really deep injury with this. And the typical process is that the first three to four days is associated with vascular thrombosis, inflammation, and extensive sort of sloughing and ulceration of the mucosa. And then over the next two weeks, due to that sloughing, the wall of the esophagus becomes thinner and thinner, which is when it's at the highest risk of perforation. And following this, the esophagus will start to develop granulation tissue as well as fibrosis and eventually the esophagus will re-epithelialize, but this process can take up to three months. For the pathophysiology of an acid-induced injury, the buzzwords here are superficial coagulation necrosis, which basically leads to thrombosis of the underlying vessels and this then leads to a protective escher forming. Because acidic solutions are actually quite painful on contact with the mucosa, then ingestion of acidic substances is usually limited compared to alkali substances. And also if there's food in the stomach, then this can have a protective effect. So moving on to the presentation of these injuries, it does mostly depend on the time frame that you're talking about the patients presenting in. So if patients present early, they may complain of pain in the chest, oropharyngeal region, or Um, epigastric. They can also present with changes in their voice, pain on swallowing, hypersalivation, vomiting, hematemesis, or even signs of perforation or peritonitis, although this usually takes a few days to develop. Patients can also present with respiratory distress, as I've mentioned, and signs and symptoms of SIRS with sepsis, fever, tachycardia, and hypotension. It's really important to get a thorough history, if possible, from people who've witnessed it from the first responders to see what was at the scene and how much seemed to have been drunk. Um, And you can also contact a poisons hotline at this point to get some more information about what it is in particular that they have ingested. In terms of investigation for caustic injuries, it does really depend on their presentation, The options involve an endoscopy, which gives you specific information about the 
extent of the injury, the grade of the injury, and can give you some prognostic information about the potential risks for that patient in the short and long term, as well as gives you information about what you should be doing to actually manage them. Another option may be a CT scan, which could theoretically give you information about perforation, the areas that are involved. You might be able to see stranding or um, thickening of the mucosa in the areas that have been damaged, and also whether or not there has been involvement of the lung parenchyma with evidence of aspiration and local damage there. You might consider giving oral contrast if there was a concern for a perforation to identify all of the information we talked about when we were discussing esophageal perforation. And in addition, a CT with oral contrast may be helpful in the longer term, looking for some of the other potential long-term complications of acidic and alkali ingestions. So time to talk about the management of these presentations. It really does depend on the severity of the injury, what needs to be done in terms of management. So once you've taken a history and examination and you have this history of an acidic or an alkali ingestion, the first steps really are approaching that patient as per the CRISP protocol. So you want to keep them kneel by mouth. You want to give them fluid resuscitation through two large-bore IV cannulae. And you want to give them oxygen because of that concern of respiratory involvement. And you want to give them some analgesia. The other medical steps that should be done is the patient should be given acid suppression with an IV PPI. And if there's any suspicion for a high-grade injury or perforation, then broad-spectrum antibiotics and antifungals should be commenced. Some things that you want to avoid are using emetics or making the patient vomit, as this is just going to re-expose the esophagus and oropharynx to whatever it is that they have ingested. The other thing you should avoid is a nasogastric tube, which can induce vomiting and can also potentially perforate a damaged esophagus or stomach. So the next step is to try and get an idea about the grade of their presentation. Usually you'd start with a chest and abdominal x-ray to rule out significant lung involvement or evidence of free perforation with free gas or mediastinal gas. Other investigations that may give you an indication about the severity of the illness could include some blood tests, such as an FBE, looking at the inflammatory markers, UEC, CMP. You want to do a blood gas looking at a lactate, and you could also send off group and hold and coagulation studies if you were thinking about operative management. The patient's clinical situation or presentation as well is another marker of how unwell they may be. They have systemic signs of inflammation with SIRS or clinical evidence of perforation, then this may be an indication that the patient has severe injury. And you should always be considering where these patients should be cared for. So if you're worried about a significant injury, especially if there's airway involvement or potential perforation, then you should be talking to the intensive care unit about them having care in that environment. The next step in investigation and workup of these patients should be an endoscopy. Endoscopy should be performed as soon as possible, definitely within 24 hours. However, some exceptions to that rule are if the patient has evidence of perforation, in which case you should be proceeding directly to theatre. If they're significantly hemodynamically unstable, in which case you may consider resuscitating them prior. And also if patients have severe respiratory distress or signs of oropharyngeal 
involvement, in which case they need intubation prior to proceeding with the endoscopy. The endoscopy is important because it's going to give you information about the extent of the injury as well as the severity of the injury. And there is an endoscopic grading system I came across, which is based upon the endoscopic appearance and grades the damage from grade zero to grade three B. I'll only briefly run through this grading system, but there are some guidelines on management of these injuries depending on the endoscopic grade. So it's good to have an idea about the spectrum of presentations you may see endoscopically. So grade zero may be a normal endoscopy. Grade one is mucosal edema or hyperemia. Grade 2A are superficial ulcers. There may be bleeding or exudate. Grade 2B are deep focal or circumferential ulcers. And then grade 3 is necrosis, with grade 3A being focal necrosis and grade 3B being extensive necrosis. The other system I saw for grading was to look at the severity of injury in terms of it being first, second or third degree, with first degree being superficial mucosal damage, second degree being mucosal and submucosal damage, and third degree being transmural damage. And there are some descriptions of endoscopic appearances correlating with these different degrees of injury, with first degree being mucosal erythema or edema, going all the way to third degree, which is transmural ulceration with sort of black discoloration or perforation. So that does kind of marry up with that other endoscopic grading system I was talking about. Which does lead us into our next discussion, which is about the management of these presentations. As you can probably guess, the management depends on a combination of factors that all need to be looked at together to give you a good idea about that patient's overall clinical situation. So that depends on their history, depends on their clinical presentation and how well or unwell they are, as well as their imaging and endoscopic findings. For patients who are completely well, who have minimal or very mild changes on their endoscopy and normal bloods, then it's reasonable to do absolutely nothing to manage these patients conservatively. Depending on how worried you are, this could be discharging the patient home if they've got an absolutely normal endoscopy. Or if you're slightly more worried, then starting the patient on a PPI and watching them in hospital for 24 or 48 hours while you slowly increase their oral intake and closely observing them for any signs of deterioration, at which point you could repeat their endoscopy imaging or progress to surgery if they had evidence of perforation or necrosis. Which does lead us on to the patients who are unwell. So if a patient is really sick, they are systemically unwell, they have evidence of deep ulceration, necrosis on their endoscopy or signs of perforation, then really these patients should be admitted, should probably have a discussion with intensive care about managing these patients there. And it's likely this group will have a higher incidence of respiratory complications. Patients should be started on a high-dose intravenous PPI and intravenous antibiotics and antifungals. And these patients should be going to the operating theatre for an endoscopy to assess the extent and severity of their injury. And if there's evidence of significant perforation or necrosis, then these patients are going to need surgical intervention. The options for surgery include primary resection, so removing the diseased portion of the esophagus. Or if patients are really unwell, then you can do proximal diversion with a cervical esophagostomy 
and a feeding jejunostomy and then come back at a later stage to remove the diseased esophagus. All of the other things we discussed with esophageal perforation also needs to be considered here. So wide washout, lavage and drainage of any contaminated spaces, including the mediastinum, chest or abdomen, as well as a consideration of feeding for these patients with placement of a feeding jejunostomy and some form of venting tube, either a venting gastrostomy or nasogastric tube is also required. The other consideration in this group is that they may have significant stomach damage because of the acidic or alkali injury, and therefore the stomach may not be able to be used as a conduit for reconstruction. And therefore, these patients would be more likely to have a colonic or a gentinal interposition, um, which again would only occur months after their injury once they have become more clinically stable and are in a more nutritionally replete state. In the long term, these patients are also at risk of long-term complications, which include esophageal strictures, so up to a third of patients who retain their esophagus who have 2B or 3 injuries, so these are ones with deep ulcers or necrosis, will develop an esophageal stricture from the scarring and fibrosis aspect of healing. These strictures can be managed with dilatation, there's some fancy sort of flap and plasty type techniques I've never seen before that were described in the literature. And obviously, if there is a stricture that is not able to be dilated or is recurrent despite dilatation, repeated dilatations, then that may be an indication for resection down the track. The other thing that patients are at risk of is actually the development of esophageal SCC which in patients who have had a caustic or corrosive ingestion is actually a thousand times higher than in the general population. This obviously applies to patients who have kept their esophagus as well as patients who have had an esophagectomy with the residual proximal esophagus potentially being a site for disease. And so these patients should actually have endoscopic surveillance for esophageal cancer that starts 15 to 20 years after the ingestion actually took place and then should be done routinely every one to three years after it's been started, depending on the findings. And that's it for esophageal perforation and corrosive or caustic injuries. I hope you learned something today. Once again, remember to rate, review, and subscribe so that others can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! Happy studying!